The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. morning. So good to have you here as we worship together. I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible this morning, to open it up to the book of Revelation. And we're going to be starting chapter 3 this morning. Um, Revelation chapter 3, if you're new to the Bible, that's the very last book of the Bible. So you can go there. Um, We're now in week 5, looking at the seven churches in Revelation, which were real churches that exist in what is now modern-day Turkey. And we're looking to the message that Jesus had for each of these churches and thinking of how we can learn from them, their situations, and apply it to our lives. Well, many years ago, um, a, a TV show called Black Mirror kind of came into consciousness and it was a hit across many, many places. I'm not necessarily recommending the show, but it is a fascinating look at technology into the future. Now, some shows, when they exist in the future and talk about technology, it's like the cool side of what technology could be, right? Like your floating cars and your robots that do the dishes for you and fold laundry, man, that's the one I really want, right? Like no more folding of all the baby clothes, please. Someone do that for me. But this show actually takes a different spin and shows the dangers of a, a society that is overly dependent on technology. And it delves into certain like kind of cool concepts with artificial intelligence and drone warfare. And there's one really popular episode and it's called Nosedive and it deals with a culture in the future wrapped around social media, but not just kind of social media as we know it, but every interaction you have with a person, you then rate them on a scale of one to five. So kind of like how we, you know, you can do a Yelp review and look up the rating of a restaurant. Every person has their own score. Where do you rank on the social structure? Not only that, but this society is set up that given your score, certain things are open to you and certain things are closed. And so it revolves around a woman who's trying to increase her score to a 4.5 so she would qualify to live in an apartment complex that is only for those of a certain social standing. And as you can guess by the name of it, Nosedive, it doesn't go so well. And it kind of is like, what is the culture about when it revolves around what anonymous people think about our interactions and rate us online? Which, if you think about it, isn't actually too far from the truth of what so much of the internet actually is nowadays. But it deals with it, and the whole show is meant to be a cautionary tale of the future. A cautionary look, not just an optimistic how great it could be, but a warning on what things could be if we are not careful and the passage that we're going to look like to look at this morning is a cautionary tale to the church. It's a warning sign saying take action behold this is what could happen. And the warning sign is that we would learn so this wouldn't happen in our church and in our lives. So if you would open your Bibles Revelation 3 we're going to read this cautionary tale to the church in Sardis Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 says this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. 
Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've been doing, if you've been walking with us, we have a five-fold outline that we walk through that is a similar pattern for each of the, the sections in Revelation 2 and 3. The first is the Christ title. What is the title that Jesus assigns to himself? In verse 1, we see it's him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is a unique phrase, the seven spirits of God, that occurs only in Revelation. It's here in Revelation three, it occurs again in chapter four and in chapter five. A reminder that especially in Revelation, seven is often a symbolic number, a number representing wholeness or completeness. And so that is definitely at play here with these seven spirits of God. It often is likely to a reference back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, looking forward to the Messiah and a descriptor of the Messiah, it says this in Isaiah 11 verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The seven descriptors there of this Holy Spirit that will rest on the Messiah. And so we shouldn't think here that this is some mystical thing or some new thing, but this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, God himself, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit that he is here and he is living and God is there with this dying church, but the living Holy Spirit is still there. The seven stars reference back to chapter one, where it talked about how these seven, the seven stars were the guardian angels of each of the churches. And so God is reminding this church of his presence, that he is with them and wants to empower them. Secondly, we have the commendation, the good that each church has done. And it starts with this, I know your works, but then it flips. Because for the first time we see there is no commendation here. There is nothing good that Jesus has to say to this church in Sardis. This is what scholars call a Jesus juke. I'm just kidding. No scholars actually call it that. I, I do, though. I'm just making sure you're awake still today, all right? And because he starts it with the normal formula, I know your works. Now, if you just look back to the previous, the previous address in chapter 2 to Thyatira, he says this in 2.19, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance. So we're expecting a compliment. I know your works and we're ready for what are the good. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're not. You're dead. And so there's no commendation here to the church. Only thirdly, the complaints. And the complaint is this, that they have a reputation. Literally, they have a name of being alive, of being a living thing. But in reality, they are dead. That the church may be known for something, and it may have been at one point alive, but in, a current, in its current state, it is a dying and a dead congregation, a dead church. It's saying, you have, you have this reputation but the reality that Jesus sees is starkly different from the reputation that it was known for. It's also referencing back to the history of Sardis itself. Sardis was once a great and a prominent city in this time and in this era, but by the time this is written, it had fallen. And it was known that Sardis is not what it once was. Think of Sardis as kind of like a modern day Detroit. 
right? Ancient Detroit, right? Like Detroit 60 years ago had three times the population it did. It was the place to be in so much industry. I'm not hating on you if you're from Detroit. My mom was born and raised in the Detroit area. No hate for Detroit people, right? But the reality is it's, it's a what used to be city and not what it is anymore. Sardis was the same. And Jesus is saying, your church has now reflected the city in which it finds itself. That it has a reputation, but the reality is very different. So fourthly, the correction. The correction, and, and it's, it's long here and it's descriptive and it's strong language. There's actually five imperatives, five commands that Jesus gives to this dying and dead church to try and resurrect them. First in verse two, wake up. Wake up. It's a, a word that's commonly used throughout the New Testament to be on alert for the return of Jesus, to open your eyes to the reality of what is and the reality of your current situation. The same word is used by Jesus and he tells a parable of the 10 virgins in the gospels. And there's five who are wise and come prepared and ready and five who are foolish. And in the story, the five wise ones bring oil and everything for their lamps so they're ready to go whenever the bridegroom would come. And he's delayed and doesn't show up till midnight, but the wise, the wise virgins are ready to go. They're ready to celebrate with him. Whereas the five foolish ones, they have to leave. They have to go home, get their supplies. And by the time they come back, they are locked out of the celebration. And Jesus says, wake up and watch for the return of Jesus. Wake up, watch for my return. Be ready, be wise in your living. The second imperative, strengthen what remains and is about to die. To, to those who are there still holding on, they, they need to grow, they need to be strong, they need to be strengthened in their faith, lest they too will be like the rest in Sardis and die. The third imperative in verse three, remember. Remember then what you received and heard. Not to live in the past, but re- remember the salvation you've experienced. Remember the gospel. Remember who Jesus is. Remember your spiritual reality and remember what you once were that you have fallen away from. The fourth imperative, keep it. Literally obey. Remember and follow it. Live it. Obey what you have been taught. And then fifth and lastly, the common imperative throughout these, these sec- this section to these verses, repent. You've been walking one way, which is leading you to death. Repent is a 180, a total change in direction to stop living this way and to change your life. So these fivefold imperatives to the church, which leads us to the fifth section, the consequences. The consequence first, what will happen if they don't? And then secondly, what will happen if they do? What will happen if they don't is seen in verse three. If you will not wake up, if you don't take heed, if you don't change, if you don't remember, repent and obey, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This idea of of Jesus coming in judgment like a thief upon his return has a biblical background. Jesus himself talked about this, about his return. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready For the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. And he's referencing back to this idea of, of the unexpected and sudden coming of Jesus to this church. But it isn't just the biblical background to this church in Sardis. Jesus is also addressing a historical context that this church would have gotten right away when he references that I will come like a thief and you won't know when I come. See, we mentioned it before that Sardis at one point had been a great and a prominent city in the area. If you go back a little over 600 years before this was likely written to this church, to 550 BC, Sardis was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. And it was a hub of culture and of power. And the king there, his name was Croesus. And he went out from there and he actually attacked the Persian king Cyrus and laid siege on one of the cities until winter came and they hadn't conquered. And so they all left the Croesus kick his troops back, went home to Sardis for the winter. They were kind of, I guess, like fair weather fighters, but that was the culture back then. They're like, it's too cold. We can't do war. We do war in the summer, right? Like, let's go home. So he, he takes his troops and he goes back to Sardis. Unexpectedly, Cyrus then turns around and lays siege on Sardis, where Croesus has returned with all of his troops. But Croesus thinks that Sardis can't be defeated. It was very high up on a cliff, and the Acropolis in which his palace was, was very high, and he had to scale huge cliffs to get up to it. And so he was so arrogant that they did not even assign certain soldiers to protect certain parts of this cliff in which it was held. And so after only 14 days, a Persian soldier climbed up, scaled the wall of this cliff, went down, opened the gates, thousands of Persian soldiers came in, and the city was promptly defeated after a siege of only 14 days, which is a very short period of time. Why? Because an officer climbed up like a thief in the night, and the city was defeated. Fast forward 300 years. 215 BC, a siege is led by Antiochus III on the city again of Sardis. This one lasts a year. And during that siege, there was a certain soldier who noticed that on this wall, again, the same huge wall, there was certain birds that always congregated in a certain area. And he speculated that if the birds are congregating in one place, it's not being guarded by soldiers. He waited until It was night and with no moon, he took 15 other men, climbed up the wall, went down, opened the city gates, and Sardis was defeated. Why? Because someone came and snuck in like a thief in the night. Twice this city had fallen because someone scaled and came in at a thief in the night when they didn't expect it. And Jesus says, just as happened to you before will now happen, but it will be me. I will come like a thief in the night, if you do not repent. And so there's great historical and cultural context of why Jesus uses this reference to this church. But there is a closing, a positive, a positive in verse four. Yet there's still a few names, a few people who haven't soiled their garments. So so what are their consequences? These people who haven't walked away, who haven't fallen, whose faith is still alive. What are their consequences? Verse four, there's three of them. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. This idea of walking with Jesus, when a ruler would defeat, he would have kind of a victory parade. And what Jesus is saying is, if you stay true to me, you will join me in my victory parade for you are clothed in white and you are worthy. And so it's this idea of honor and procession in Jesus's victory that we get to be invited and involved into. 
The second, the second positive consequence is in verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. This is made kind of reference to multiple times there. They haven't soiled their garments. That's a metaphor. That's not actually a physical thing. They'll walk with me in white. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. White clothes throughout the Bible and throughout especially the book of Revelation are a sign of purity and godliness, of being set apart. And it's even kind of relatively true still in our culture today, right? You don't see many brides wearing a black wedding dress as they walk down the aisle. Why? Because white is this kind of cultural symbol of purity. And so white clothes represented being set apart, being with Jesus. He's saying, you will be set apart. You will be clothed in my righteousness. You'll be made clean and pure and whole. The third consequence of of overcoming, of being with Jesus, is this in verse 5. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Now, this idea of a book that contains all of those who belong to God has Old Testament background. The book of Exodus and Psalms and Isaiah kind of reference this idea that God has a book. Now, don't think that literally God is up in heaven with a book, like he's forgetting your name. And he's like, let me look at the yearbook. Oh yeah, that's Roy. I remember him. No, like God's not up there with an actual book, but it's this idea that God knows who are his and they, and they are safe and secure and nothing can remove them from him. In fact, there's a cultural context here as well. In these cities in the Greco-Roman world, if you were a citizen, your name was written in a registry on a book. But if you did a crime, what they would often do as a punishment for your crime is your citizenship was revoked and your name was blotted out of the registry. And Jesus is saying that will never happen to you if you follow after me. You will never be blotted out. It's significant too there that he says, I will confess his name. I'll never blot out his name. See that idea of name plays throughout the whole thing. This whole passage here in verse one, when it says you have the reputation, it literally is you have this name of being alive, but you're not. But there's still in verse four, a few names who I know and those who truly follow me, I will not blot out their name, but I will confess their name before the father. And so for the positive, those who overcome, those who stay faithful will walk with Jesus, be clothed in his purity and will have eternal security with him forever. Three lessons that we can learn from this church, three lessons from the church of Sardis that we can learn to and apply in our lives. The first is this, complacency can kill a church. Complacency can kill a church. Complacency can kill a church our spiritual walk with Jesus in our lives. And it ruins this city of Sardis twice. They hadn't posted the proper defenses. They had become complacent. They had become lazy and their city had fallen. And now the church has fallen prey to this exact same thing of coasting and being complacent in life. See, most churches and most Christians who walk away from the gospel, who move away from Jesus, who move away from what scripture teaches, it's not like they're walking with Jesus, they're passionate, they're filled with, they're, they're on fire for Christ, and then they just wake up on Monday and they're like, you know what, I don't want anything to do with any of it. No, what happens is it's small and seemingly insignificant decisions that are made over a period of weeks, months, and years to where you finally find yourself in a complacent place that you've drifted so far that you don't even resemble anything as to what you once were before. It's not that you just one day decide, I'm gonna blow up my life today. No, but it was small decisions 
No church just to say, you know, we're going to walk away from the gospel. No, but it's, it's small decisions of what's tolerated and what's preached and what's taught and what's believed over months and years that slowly can lead away from the gospel. I think the reality is COVID pushed a lot of Christians in this place of complacency. Right? We've had for thousands of years this ritual of gathering together, of worshiping, of there's power in God's people present and dwelling amongst one another. And then we were like, yeah, but you know what? It's more comfortable being home in my pajamas with coffee and a donut. And I'm like, it is. And we easily can become complacent. We can coast, we can drift in life. So what must we be vigilant to? What must we hold on to to make sure that we don't become complacent in our lives? And as a church, what what must we be rooted to? Well, a few things as we think back and look at the overall message that we've looked at for the last over a month now in in these chapters and verses together. We first must be vigilant to the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus is center and he is the core of everything that we are as a church and everything that we are as our lives. And that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. And we will not bow down to the foreign gods. We will not succumb to pressure to add or to subtract from what Jesus has said and from what the word of God reveals is true. We must be vigilant in our love for others. Remember back to the first church in Ephesus, they had this head knowledge and it was not lived out. We must be vigilant to make sure that we don't just become saved in our heads, but our lives look exactly the same as everyone else's but that the love of God received must be then lived out and extended in love for others. We must be vigilant and loving well and loving others in our lives and making sure our church is all about loving others as Jesus has loved us. We must resist false teaching, the pressure to conform, to modify, to change the message of the gospel, to change the teaching of the implications of following after Jesus is ever present and increasing in our world. And some churches, as we've seen, didn't resist it. And they allowed it to come into devastating consequences. And we must resist false teaching from coming into our lives and into our church. We must be vigilant in Christian living, in a passion for personal holiness and growth in our lives. See, because the world is teaching almost the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And it's really easy that if we're not passionate for wanting our lives day by day to become more like Jesus, to reflect Jesus, that our hearts are not attuned to what our neighbor looks like, our boss looks like, the the person across the street looks like, but our hearts want to be in tune with who Jesus is. And that's who we're striving after. But if we lose that passion for holiness, what will naturally happen is we're just going to start to drift and look like the people around us. Don't we, And if we sat and talked, don't you know so many Christians whose lives look exactly the same as everybody else's. That Jesus in their life has made no difference. You can never pick them out of a lineup because they've allowed complacency to drift into their life. And if you're in a place today of spiritual complacency where you've wandered, see that the hope is that if you can look back at your life spiritual growth is not up and to the right. It's not a, a perfect thing. There's ups and downs, absolutely. But if you look back at your life where you were two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, are you, are you trending closer to Christ? Are you growing in your love, in your service? Or are you like Sardis that it's trending the opposite way? And you're not once what you once were. And if you find yourself in a place of spiritual complacency, my cry to you today is Jesus' cry to this church to wake up, 
to realize where you're at. It's not too late, but to wake up and realize where you've walked away, where you've wandered and return to Jesus. Complacency can kill a church. Complacency can wreck our lives. The second lesson from this church is that we always need the gospel. We always need the gospel. Every single one of us, whether you're a first-time believer, whether you're not even a Christian, or whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades, we all need the gospel. One of the the returns that that he calls on this church to this imperative in, in verse three is this, is to remember Remember then what you received and heard. This idea of being what you've received is this formal reception of the gospel. It's language picked up that Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What you've received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, what what was the call? What did these Christians, what did these people who went to church, what did they need? They needed the basics of the gospel to wake them up. We never grow past our need to be reminded of the gospel. There's never a point in spiritual maturity where we can be like, yeah, the fact that Jesus died, was buried and rose from dead doesn't really, I don't need to hear that today. No matter how mature you are, immature you are, that is what we need to know and to hear and to have delve into our hearts every single day is the gospel. That God died for you. He sent his son, Jesus died for you, was buried, but he defeated death and rose from the grave. See, this gospel truth of what Jesus did encourages us at our lowest and humbles us at our very highest. See, and encourage you if, you, if you're at a low place in life today, the gospel brings encouragement. If you're here this morning and you're sad and you're lonely, the gospel reminds you that you are so loved that God saw you and sent Jesus because of his love for you to die for you. If you're filled with fear and feeling overwhelmed, the gospel reminds you that Jesus is gentle and lowly and his burden for you is light. If you're here this morning, you're feeling low because you're overwhelmed with sin and guilt and that no one would ever love you. It's wrong because there's more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your life. And it doesn't matter how bad or how low you feel today, the gospel can raise you up because it reminds you of who you are and of what Jesus has done for you of Jesus's love, his grace, his mercy. So at our lowest point, we need the gospel because it raises us, it reminds us of who Jesus is. But on our very best day, when all the achievements has happened, on your most holy, pure day that you will ever live, your most, as much as you can, the least sinful day you'll ever have, that day you still need the gospel as well. Because it's a reminder that it's not by works that you're saved, but by grace not because of works, that you can never boast in yourself. And on your very best day, you need the gospel to remind you, even if I had really good, if I got the achievement, if I got the promotion for all of the accolades that could come on me, I still need Jesus today. And it humbles us and keeps us from prideful arrogance, that all of us need the gospel on our worst day and on our best. This is one of the reasons that as a church, why we regularly take communion, It's to remember the gospel together. That we too often are filled with worries and consumptions and things of this world. And we need to regularly come back to the core of our faith. Jesus died. He was buried and he rose from the dead. We need to remember that ourselves. The third lesson 
for this church in Sardis is that a faithful minority can make a major difference. A faithful minority in a place that has moved away from God and has rejected him can still make a major difference. That's why these, these words end with hope for those who are still holding on. I wonder what it would have been like to be a Christian in Sardis when this is written to them. Because right? not only are they in a world that doesn't believe in Jesus, that has rejected him, they're in a church that's rejected Jesus and walked away. Right? At least some of these other churches, they, they were, had cultural pressure, but inside of the church, they were alive and following after. That's not true. This is a dead church, but there's still a few holding on. What does he say? He says, he says I, I see you. God has not forgotten you. God has, has held on and you will not be forgotten before the Father in heaven one day. You know, faithfully following Jesus will not win us popularity contests in the world. It just won't. It won't win us popularity contests. And that's what he's reminding them of. So how how can they strengthen themselves? How can this faithful minority find what it says there, that second imperative, this strength to endure, to grow? How are they to find strength in the face of such obstacles? Not just a world far from God, but a church that is dying as well. He reminds them of this truth that strength is not in numbers. Sorry, Golden State Warriors, it's not true, right? Your strength is not in numbers, but strength is in the power of the Holy Spirit. That our strength as followers of Jesus is not in how many people believe the same thing we do. In a world that believes what we believe, that's not where we find our strength. We find our strength that we have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. That's why to this dying church and to the remaining few who are there holding on, he reminds them that this is Jesus who has the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit is sent to them. See, what can bring a church on the brink of death back to life? Only the Holy Spirit. What can empower godly living in the face of obstacles ever present? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And like this church in Sardis is called to, as a faithful minority where God has placed you in this world, we must learn to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we don't have the numbers. We don't have the advantage. And so we must learn to live in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives every day. Romans chapter eight says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's a rhetorical statement. He's saying it does. This same spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who raised, who resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead, if he lives in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That if you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He doesn't live here at church and then you're on your own when you leave this place, but he follows you. He's present every day to empower you for whatever you have to face, whatever obstacle would come your way. One of Jesus's last words to his disciples in the book of Luke Acts, so this is in Acts chapter one, is Jesus says this to disciples, you will receive power. And then he doesn't say, you will receive power when you get political power over others. He doesn't say you will receive power when Christianity has become the cultural norm so you're looked at as a good people, not as odd people. He doesn't say you will receive power when all these things happen. What he say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In the minority, in looking down on by others, and being rejected, but that's when you receive power. Not when you achieve worldly power, but we achieve power when God dwells within 
us. See, as followers of Jesus in our time, in our day, it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to focus on the hardship, to focus on the obstacles of, of how far our world is away from God, of the challenge of living for him where he's called us to. But we need this reminder, like this church in Sardis need the reminder, as John says in 1 John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And whatever you are facing this week in your life, whatever fear, whatever obstacle, whatever pressure to conform, whatever it is that you're facing, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. God is with you. We cannot live a life pleasing to God in this kind of world on our own strength. We can only do it as we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if you remember, remember that this week, when you go from this place, that you're not alone, that God is with you. And every challenge, every, every obstacle that comes your way, you need to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit, asking him for wisdom, for guidance, to encourage you, to give you the strength to obey the courage of what it looks like, because you will not do it on your own as the minority in our world. And now more than ever, what we need are believers relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. One of my prayers that I pray regularly for our church, and I would invite you to pray this as well, is that God would do something through this church that can only be explained because the Holy Spirit is present here. When people would look at Morgan Hill Bible Church, it wouldn't be, well, that happened because of the staff or because of their facilities or because of that. The people would look at this church and say, that could only happen because the Holy Spirit did something there. And the Holy Spirit will only do something amazing here as he does something amazing through each and every one of our lives. And so as you go in the power of the Holy Spirit today, would you be encouraged not to live life just grabbing on and trying to do it as best you can, but in every situation, leaning and resting on the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. God, we thank you that you have not left us alone, but have sent your spirit into the world. God, I pray that we would more and more know and look and recognize the power available to us, that same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead lives in us. May we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you do a work through this church that is only possible because you are here and your spirit is working powerfully in our midst, we pray. God, if there's anyone here this morning who, like this church in Sardis, has fallen into spiritual complacency, God, through your spirit, would you wake them up? Would they wake and obey and repent and remember and turn back to you? God, we thank you that there's always more grace in your heart than sin in our lives. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.